Welcome to the Hillel at Home podcast, where we bring you dynamic conversations with Jewish celebrities, thought leaders, students, and Hillel professionals. Together, we'll learn, laugh, process current events, reflect on our changing world, and of course, schmooze. The quality of your life is not dependent upon your circumstances, but what you do with them. I'm your host, Zach Epstein, co-chair of the Hill International Student Cabinet and a senior at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, we talk with Scott Fried. You may already be familiar with Scott's story. He was a member of the HIV AIDS support group, which inspired the Broadway musical Rent. He talks us through the lessons he's learned on love, acceptance, and forgiveness in the time of a pandemic. This talk was recorded on April 21st, 2020. Be with me. Just be with me. I think that's what we need right now. We are all, I think, floating out there in our respective lifeboats, our life rafts, trying to survive this. And what I need, I think, is what you need, mostly for what I need. I need you to be with me so it's not so lonely. And the next thing I want to say is the most important thing I'm going to say. And if you've heard me speak before, you've heard me say this. I'm going to say it again and listen carefully because it's true. You are completely loved. You are completely loved because you are completely lovable. Just take that in because I don't know when the last time you heard that was, certainly on a Zoom call, but it's true. You are completely loved Because you are completely lovable, not just on Sunday mornings and not just on good hair days and not just because life is good. No, when life is painful, like today, and it's hard to get out of bed, we can't get our hair cut, you are completely loved in these moments because you are completely lovable all the time. I need you to at least consider that for the time we're together while I ask you to be with me to consider this truth because it's what will get you through. It's certainly what's got it, gotten me through surviving so far. And the, and the pandemic I'm learning from is the one that I started out with in the 80s. I will tell you at the start that I got infected with HIV in 1987 at the height of what was then the pandemic of the world of, the, of ever. And now we've got a bigger one. I got infected for many reasons, but I'll give you the top three. One... I didn't think it could happen to me. Two, I didn't use a condom and no one taught me how. Three, and this is the big one, I got infected because I didn't think I was completely loved. I could never be completely lovable, not me. I had to suffer, I had to struggle, I had to hurt. I had to earn it somehow. I had to somehow self-destruct. Everything I want to teach you tonight, or at least inspire you with tonight, comes from what I learned many, many years ago at the height of the AIDS epidemic. We called this talk tonight, Andrea and I talked about it, Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness. Why? This is really important because for 32 years, I've been living with HIV. And for 15 of those 32 years, I would sit in my support group every Monday, Tuesday night, and sometimes Friday night, bingo. For 15 years, I sat in my chair with other people who were living with and dying from AIDS, from which the musical Rent was written about, about us, about our group. My HIV support group 
called Friends Indeed was written into the musical Rent called Life Support, Act One and Act Two. Jonathan Larson, who wrote the musical, would sit behind me every Monday night and he would take notes, he would write down the things he would say and he wrote it into the musical. For 15 years, I'd sit in that chair. And then for another 15 years, I went out in the world and taught you what I learned. And what I understood when COVID-19 came down around March 5th, March 6th, March 7th, everything was canceled on my calendar, was maybe it might be interesting if I could apply some of what I learned in the early part of the epidemic to this epidemic. And that's what tonight's talk is about. And the first of many lessons is the most important. Love, forgiveness, and acceptance. Every Tuesday night, sitting in my chair, I would cry, I would protest, I would pray, I would petition, I would prevail upon God and anyone who would listen so that I would have an answer as to why this is happening to me, to my friends, to my world. It took me about a decade and a half to get to the place of understanding that in the end, it was about forgiveness, about acceptance, and about love. Forgiving myself for not being the person I want to be, but accepting myself for being the person that I am and loving who I am. Forgiving myself for not being the person I thought I was supposed to be and accepting myself as the person I am and loving myself all the way through it. So I thought that I would start getting through this pandemic where I left off with the last one. Love, forgiveness, and acceptance. And that's a tall order if you're a college kid who is supposed to be a student, who is supposed to be graduating next month or this month, and you don't get to walk. That's a tall order if you're someone who's losing a grandparent or a good friend. If you're grieving like I'm grieving just by having the absence of agency, the freedom to walk outside and hug somebody, that's a tall order to ask you to consider. Love, forgiveness, and acceptance. But if you stick with me, I will get you there. When I got infected with HIV, it took me a long time to get to a place of acceptance and forgiveness and love. But what I learned was written into the musical Rent. And one of those lessons comes from the musical in the song, No Day But Today. We would sit in our support group for 90 minutes. We would talk about our T-cells. We would talk about our impending deaths. We talk about dating and how to share our HIV status with people that we want to date. And the facilitator would say, when we get nervous, how do you feel today? But how do you feel today? Just like in the musical. Her name is Cynthia. In the musical, it's a character, a black man. But in the musical, on the one they did on the Fox version two years ago on, on live, live TV, they gave the character her right, her right name, Cynthia. We would say, I'm scared of dying. I'm scared of not getting through this epidemic. I don't know how to survive this. And she would say, what time is it? Where are you? What are you wearing? And we would say, uh, 7.15, I'm at a support group in Manhattan in Soho, to be exact, and I'm wearing a blue sweater. That's all we know. So lesson number two on how to survive a pandemic the first lesson is to know that you are completely loved because you are completely lovable. Lesson number two is to stay in the present. And if you forget, all you have to do is download onto your Spotify playlist the version that you like of No Day But Today. We said it, he put it into the musical. What does it mean, No Day But Today? 
we would say, but I'm scared of the future. I'm scared of this, this, this imagined future that means death, which equals anxiety. It's called anticipatory grief, deciding how the future is going to go, which hasn't been written yet. And she would say, how do you feel today? How do you feel today? Because all you have is today. And one day, one night, I raised my hand. And I was sitting in the back row. Every week I sat in the front row. I was her pet. But this one night I was angry. So I sat in the back row. And I raised my hand and I said, and I quote, I am suspicious of you. I find some of what you're saying just a little suspicious. And she said, why is that? And I said, because reason tells me I'm not supposed to be alive. All my friends are dying and I'm not. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure this out. And it got written into the musical. And if you know the musical, right before they break into No Day But Today, there's a character whose name is Paul who says, and I quote, I find some of what you say suspect. Because reason says I should have died three years ago. I'm trying to hold on to intellect and make sense of what I do not know. That was me. That was me in the musical. Which brings us to lesson three. Let's hang out with I don't know. This time in our lives brings us so much uncertainty. This is the great don't know. And I said it years ago and it got written into, into musical. I'm trying to make sense of what I don't understand and what I do not know. The great don't know keeps us curious. Curiosity keeps us detached. Being detached keeps us out of the future and staying in the present. So hang out with I don't know for a little while. Look, I find some of what you say suspect because I'm used to relying on intellect, but I try to open up to what I don't know. No day but today. Let's hang out in the don't know. His name was James Bourne and he was dying of AIDS. He was a friend of mine and he had a keeper on his head and he was sitting on the floor one night in the support group. He didn't get there in time to make, uh, to make, for the room to have, for the couch or for the chairs. So he sat on the floor with his kippah. His knees were hunched up against his chest. He had a goatee and round spectacles. He said, hi, my name is um, James, and I'm dying of AIDS. I used to walk really fast, but I can't anymore. And here's what I've learned as I'm dying, that while I walk slowly, there are smells in the bakery that I never noticed before. The pie in the window, the flour in the store, the contact, eye contact I make with the bus driver as I slowly take one step to the next step to get on the bus. In his dying, he was more alive than ever before. When we give ourselves the gift of living in the moment, no day but this day, no other road, no other way. We give ourselves the gift of life. James Bourne was more alive in his dying than anybody else in that room who was afraid of dying, which equals being afraid of living. So I want you to stay, if you can, right here in the moment, in the moment. There's something I learned a long time ago, and I call it the faithful ache. The faithful ache is that part of us that hurts when we give our bodies to a guy or a girl who doesn't text us the next day. 
The fateful ache is that emptiness that beckons on a private midnight when our parents get divorced and say, we're divorcing each other and we think they're divorcing us. The fateful ache is that chaos on the inside of ourselves that's only calmed by some of us that can understand when those of us who cut our skin in places our parents will never see because cutting is not a cry for help, but a need to feel alive, to feel anything, to just feel. Faithful ache. Today we are experiencing a communal faithful ache. You're in your box, I'm in mine, on a gallery screen, on a Zoom call. We're in it together. I'm in my lifeboat, you're in yours. What I learned about the faithful ache is it's really important. When life hurts, we must let it. So the next lesson I want to share with you tonight on this journey of surviving this pandemic is this. When life hurts, let it. And I'll explain it this way. When my friend Jennifer was dying of AIDS, she's a nice Jewish girl from Westchester, Scarsdale High School. I went to say goodnight to her. She was in a hospital and her face was turned towards the window. It was in the early 90s. And it's true that most people when they're dying of AIDS or something else, their face is turned towards the window. It makes sense. That's where the hope is. That's where the light is. That's where the promise is. So I went around to her side of the bed where her face was turned rather than have her look at me. I went to her. I looked into her eyes, I got down on my knees, and instead of her saying to me, Scott, so good to see you. What's the weather like? Thank you for always visiting me. How are you? She engaged me in a conversation. A conversation she was already having with something or someone else, and she invited me in. I was on my knees, I looked into her eyes, and she said, shit, this hurts, over and over and over. This hurts over and over. Shit, this hurts. I wanted to say to her what we always say when someone's in pain, emotional or physical. No, it doesn't. It'll pass. Time heals all wounds. But you and I both know that time does not heal all wounds. For those of us who've lost a bubby or a zady or know someone who's sick, you know that I know that you know that time does not heal all wounds. Time gives us time to make sense of the wound. Time gives us time to adapt our life around the wound. That's all time does. So instead of saying the opposite, I said the thing that we never say. I looked into her eyes and I said, yes, Jan, yes, this sucks. Yeah, this hurts. I see that it hurts. Life hurts. AIDS hurts. This sucks. Yes. And she stared into my eyes, and it was as if she was trying to take something from inside of me. She was searching hard. She was reaching into me with her gaze, and I wanted to look away, but I knew that I couldn't because I think she needed me. So I stared back. She searched, and I gave, and she spoke. She broke the silence, and she said, I'll never forget, she said, it stopped hurting. It stopped hurting. I didn't take Jen's pain away. She died a few nights later all by herself in that hospital, middle of the night, around 3.30 in the morning. What I did was give Jen permission to have her pain. What I did was give Jen permission to be Jen. And I know that life is hard. 
And I know that you know that life is hard. And this hurts and this sucks. So let me say that sentence again. When life hurts, let it. It's a really important sentence because we must give ourselves permission to feel the faithful ache. In the time of the faithful ache, we must give ourselves permission to lament the absence of the perfect life. If you're taking notes, I'm going to say it again so you can write it down. In the time of the faithful ache, we must give ourselves permission to lament the absence of the perfect life. It's the one we got permission to be exactly who we are. So I said this sentence, when life hurts, let it, to a room full of 11th graders at a Solomon Schechter in New Jersey a few years ago, and an 11th grade boy on the aisle sneezed. And I said, bless you. And then, because I think God is talking to me all the time, I heard God, or this voice, or this prompt in my head that said, say it again and put it together. Say it again and put it together. So I said it again, and I put it together. And it sounded like this. When life hurts, let it bless you. When life hurts, let it bless you. When life hurts, let it bless you. My friend Dominic was dying of AIDS. Came to the support group one night. He raised his hand and said, my name is Dominic, and I have cancer related to AIDS, lymphoma related to HIV, and I am. I learned something. I thought that AIDS was going to make me big, but AIDS didn't make me big. AIDS only showed me how big I've always been. You already are strong. You already are enough. We need to be reminded. We just need to be reminded, and this is what's reminding us. So when life hurts, let it, as awkward as that sounds and as awkward as it is to do, it's really important because when we give ourselves permission to feel the faithful ache, it doesn't ache as much. Like Jennifer said, it stopped hurting. It stopped hurting. I want to go one scoop deeper if I can. One night, a young man raised his hand in the support group and he said that he was dying of AIDS and he was scared, which brings me to my next lesson which is this, let's try for the next few weeks, if we can, to live our lives with a few less adjectives. What would life be like if we could live without adjectives? Oh my God, it's the worst thing ever. This is the, I'm, the, I'm so broke. It never gets better. The world is never gonna be the same. We're never gonna go back to normal. What would it be like if we could just challenge ourselves to live without the adjectives? and just live life as it is. And I will give you an example. This young man raised his hand. He said, my name is whatever it was, and I'm dying of AIDS. I don't think I'm gonna fight this. I don't think I'm gonna beat this. And I'm scared, and I don't know how to tell my parents. And the facilitator, Sai, said, now stay with me on this point, because it's gonna sound a bit harsh, but I'm going to explain it, okay? She said, got it. Where's the problem? And he said, I don't think you heard me. Let me explain. Let me say it again. I think I'm going to die of AIDS. I can't fight this anymore. And I haven't told my parents. She said, oh, I heard you the first time. I just didn't hear where the problem was. Because we live our lives with adjectives. It's good, it's bad. It's the best, it's the worst. What if it just is? What if for the next few weeks we were just living our lives and floating with the river? to see where the river takes us. Neither good nor bad, right nor wrong, best nor worst. And then she said this next sentence, the quality of your life 
is not dependent upon your circumstances, but what you do with them. Let me say that again. The quality of your life and the quality of the happiness that you seek in your life does not depend on your HIV or your quarantine or your girlfriend breaking up with you or not being able to walk for graduation and being, being alone and lonely. The quality of your life and the quality of the happiness in your life depends on what you're going to do with that, how you relate to that. So what are you going to do? You're quarantined. can't hug anybody outside of your bubble. You're lonely, you're hurting, you're panicked, your anxiety is at an all-time high. You're bored, you're confused, and you're sometimes happy. The only question I have to ask for you is, what are you going to do about it? How we relate to that is how we change our life. I got infected with HIV my first time having unprotected sex. I don't know if you know this. We don't even call it that anymore. We don't say unprotected sex because it's so stigmatizing. The term we use now is condomless sex. I got infected with HIV my first time having condomless sex and I didn't die. What I made of my life is up to me, not the virus. I found a way to figure this out, which brings me to my next lesson, which is a big one. We're coming full circle now. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. I had to find a way to forgive the guy who infected me. He knew he was infected when he gave me his phone number on a piece of paper. And in 1987, when somebody gave you, somebody gave you their phone number on a piece of paper and said, call me, you know, we called that, we called that social media. That was Facebook. That was Zoom. That was our internet. A phone number and a piece of paper. And I said, I'm never going to call this guy. And I called him. And I didn't use the condom and I got infected. I have to find a way to forgive him. He who knew that he had the virus when he gave me that phone number. Why? Because the quality of my happiness in my life depended on it. He died of AIDS a few years later. He would never know if I forgave him. But I'm still here. And I want my days and I want your days to be good days, which requires some forgiveness. So how did I do it? How did I forgive the guy who knowingly infected me? Because I didn't want to be hanging on to bitterness and resentment anymore. I wanted an open heart. I wanted to be compassionate. I remembered this one time that he and I went to the movies together. Most of the time we just hooked up. It was Netflix and chill. Only we called it VHS and chill back then. Same thing. But there was one time we went to a movie together in Times Square in New York City. And somebody knocked into him or he knocked into somebody. And the guy said, hey. Watch it. Watch where you're going, loser. And the guy who infected me cowered. He just cowered. He was scared of somebody else. So when it came time for me to forgive him for infecting me, I forgave that guy, the one who had fear, the one who was afraid of other people, the one who reminded me that we're all human. We've all been bullied. We've all got something over our shoulder that we're scared of. I forgave that guy. The humanity in that guy. Forgiveness is important for this reason. So my friend George Melton, my friend George said before he died of AIDS, he said, every time something happened in my life that I wasn't happy with, I would ask myself, why did this happen and how can I grow? In his case, it was AIDS. In our case, it's Corona. And George said, the answer that always came to me was a willingness to forgive Everybody, everything.
Now, this is a big concept, and I'm not, I don't require you to get it and to even do this, but just consider what would it be like if you, if we could forgive everyone everything for just 30 seconds of every day? All right, let's make it even easier. 30 seconds today. And then in the 31st second, go back to being resentful and holding a grudge and being bitter. But since there really is no such thing as time, it's only a construct anyway, for 30 seconds in that construct, you had forgiven everyone everything. Now, it's a big request, but George had no other choice because he knew he was dying and he wanted to die clear, clean-hearted. So he found a way to forgive everyone, everything, because his life depended on it. It's really important to live our lives without adjectives sometimes. To say, this is the way things are. It's the great, I don't know. From that place, go to a place of forgiveness. When I got my diagnosis, it was 1988, June 1st, and I was told I have three good years to live and two bad years, and then I would die. And that would put me at 29 years of age. And I'm 56 now in my apartment in New York City, in my lifeboat. How I survived, I can tell you all these principles I've taught you tonight. And this next one. I went searching for support before I found the support group that the musical Rent was based on. And this is before the internet in 1987-88. So I went to a bookstore and I looked in the self-help section of a book that would be inspiring. And I saw a book that interested me. But the reason was because of the name of the author. When I went to get tested for HIV, I gave a fake name. I didn't want to say Scott Free because I was afraid that if my results came back positive, I would lose my health insurance. It would be out in the public. So I gave a fake name. I chose the name Stephen Levine because it was Jewish. Same initial as Scott. Levine, Jewish. So I, they said, give us a name, any name. I said Stephen Levine. So when I got my results, they were given to a guy, me, named Stephen Levine. Steve Levine on East 29th Street on February 8th, 1988. So I went to a bookstore looking for inspiration and I, get, I see a book by a man named Stephen Levine, pronounced Levine. And his book, the book is called Who Dies? And this is what he writes in the book. Stephen Levine, in the book Who Dies, writes, and this, the thing I want you to read is the last paragraph. Death is not your enemy. It assures you of an ultimate way out of this pain. We can all count on death. It is our great given friend. What is the enemy? Closed-heartedness. Lifelessness now, lovelessness now, unawareness now, that is the enemy. Stephen Levine Levine taught me in his book, Who Dies? The way we survive is with an open heart. The way we survive is by staying awake. The way we survive is being here for each other now. Being here with open hearts now. The last thing I'm going to say, I got a text from an old student, a student of mine who I haven't seen and heard in 20 years. And she just reached out to me from, they're up in Syracuse and said, how are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm fine. I already lived through an epidemic, but my iPhone auto-corrected lived to loved. And she said, huh, well, that's an interesting sentence. I didn't even realize it had written that. I had written that, but I kept it. 
I already loved through an epidemic. I intend to do the same with this one. And I invite you to join me. How much more compassionate can we be to each other? How much more compassionate can we be to ourselves? I survived by staying present in this moment because this is where the miracle is in this moment. This is where God can find me in this moment. I survived by staying in the I don't know, living with the uncertainty, being comfortable with being uncomfortable with being uncertain. I survived by offering forgiveness to people because I knew it would give me extra, extra life. I survived by keeping my heart open. I invite you to hang out with me in my lifeboat. If you find it hard, DM me on Instagram, send me an email, and we'll hang out together. And I'll remind you of what I shared with you tonight. So I want to hear from you. And that's important because something else I learned in my support group, the facilitator said one night, I cannot give you days to your life, but I can give you life to your days. And I leaned forward and I said, what, what, what is it? And she said, serve, help, find a purpose, help somebody else, and it will give you life. How can I help you? How can I be of service to you? What can I do for you that might be might ease your pain, lighten your load, give you some comfort? We need to survive. We need a roof over our head. We need food in our bellies. And we need to wait this out. And some of us want to escape. So in these moments, we need to find a way to keep that roof over our head and keep food in our bellies and keep things called the Seder in our house, in our lifeboat. Here's how you do it. The first thing is, and I haven't said this tonight, some of you know this, this is, this is one of my favorite pieces of material. We need to find our Khmer people. The Khmer person is C-apostrophe-M-E-R-E. They are the people in our lives who literally say, come here, have a seat next to me. I saved you some dessert. Come here, let me love you. Come here, let me tell you a secret. Now, here's the thing about Khmer people. They're not the ones who always live in our homes or with whom we're quarantined. Most of the time, we're not. They're not. The Khmer people aren't even our best friends. Our BFSAA, our best friend forever and always, will tell us, do not date that guy. He is not the guy for you. That's what a best friend will tell you. The Khmer person says, if you date that guy and he breaks his heart, your heart, I'm going to be here with a plate of babka, and I'm going to love you. Know the difference. We need BFFs. We also need Khmer people. They're not the same person. When we were born, we were all wrapped in a blanket, an 11 by 11 inch piece of muslin called a receiving blanket. I have my nephews. And then we were placed on a table to be weighed. It's called a receiving table. Once upon a time, when you were born, the world received you exactly as you are and wrapped you in a cloak of kindness. And then you became a college student and Corona came down. And the world seemed cruel and unkind and stopped receiving us. So in those moments, Vicky, we need to look to the Khmer people. And they're the ones that don't judge and don't scold and don't fix because they know we're not broken. They're the ones that don't try to change us and don't interrupt us because they know that we, must, we need to be heard. This is important. Khmer people know that what's, what heals us is not just being heard. 
but knowing that we were heard. Khmer people know that what heals us is not just being heard, but knowing that we were being heard. So they repeat back to us, ah, so this hurts, this sucks. Yes, it hurts, it sucks, and the pain starts to go away. My great aunt Mindel, who survived Auschwitz, and we're having this, you know, Yom HaShoah right now, she, she hid out in a field and she survived. She was liberated by the Russians, and I met her when I was a little boy in Brooklyn. And she would say to me on Sunday nights, she would say, Skadi, three times. She would say, Skadi, Skadi. In Yiddish, she would say, Tish. Put your tush on the table. Which literally means take your secrets out of your pockets, lay your cards down, show me who you are so that I can love you more. When my father was dying of cancer, melanoma, he turned to me and said, I'm so glad you came out to me and you shared your HIV status with me and that you're gay with me. And I said, why, Dad, why? He said, because you gave me more of you to love. The Khmer people love your pain they hold it with you so that it's not so heavy. So we have to abide by the rules of the quarantine lifeboat. We have, to, we have to be amenable or amenable, however you pronounce that, to get by for things to be called the Seder. But then we can retreat to our Zoom calls, our phone calls, our silent spaces, our invisible kingdoms, and get on a conversation with a Khmer person who says yes to our pain. How much more can I love you? Let me hold this for you. Next time, we'll sit down with Brandon Strott to learn about what's really going on with anxiety and how to hack our brains and bodies to ride it out. So to say that we're living, you know, under and within acute stress in our system is, is an understatement of note because none of us have been here before and we're all really trying to make our way through the crisis, through the mess, through the loss of it all each day. And while we're doing that, um, I also believe that we're clasping on as best we can for hope and for resolution to this crisis around the world. We'll talk about all that and more next time. So be sure to tune in wherever you get your podcast. This podcast is a production of Hillel at Home and the Global Student Experiences team at Hillel International. This episode was produced by Michael Kagan and edited by Andy Anderson. Matthew Berger is our executive producer. Special thanks to Rachel Gordon and Scott Black. Our theme music is by Baron Grant. If you like this show, please rate, subscribe, review, and share. You can listen to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.